Hey, it's Andrew Claven. Welcome to this week's interview. Today, we're going to be talking about crime and the victims of crime. One of my favorite genres in the movies is the small crime film. These are films that audiences often ignore. They're often not big hits. Critics occasionally like them. They focus on odd criminal characters and cleverly plotted exploits. There's films like uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Uh, there's a French film called Monsieur Hier that I love. It's based on a Georges Simenon novel. Uh, there's The Bank Job with Jason Statham. And I'm proud to say my own entry into the field is Shock to the System with Michael Caine, which I wrote based on the uh, wonderful novel by Simon Brett. There's one film, and I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I, I'm going to spoil it, and I don't want to spoil it if you ever get to see it. But basically, I'm disguising a little bit, but basically in this crime film, an absolutely beautiful, beautiful, sexy woman moves in with this nebbishy little man. And she not only becomes the perfect girlfriend in any number of ways, but she also fulfills every sexual fantasy this guy has, including his weird little fetish. She is just a dream come true, and she's too good to be true. And of course, the whole thing turns out to be a con. She is a con woman pulling a, a big con on the guy. And when he finds out, his heart is broken, and he turns to her and looks at her, and she, she turns to him, and in all honesty, she says, what did you expect? What did you expect? In order to pull off an obvious con like that, the Mark, the Nebishi guy, has to be blinded by his own desire to believe in something and to believe that in something that goes against the nature of life, in which beautiful women, let's face it, do not fulfill all their dreams and sex fantasies of Nebishes. One of the worst con men on earth is George Soros. And he's, one of the most evil things he's done is to stock our cities with leftist prosecutors who will not do their job and will not prosecute crime. And here's his reason from an op-ed that was published in his name in the Wall Street Journal. He said, the idea that we need to choose between justice and safety is false. They reinforce each other. If people trust the justice system, it will work. And if the system works, public safety will improve. We need to acknowledge that black people in the U.S. are five times as likely to be sent to jail as white people. That is an injustice. Justice that undermines our democracy. Is it, though? Is it an injustice if the black people are committing a lot of crimes? I mean, it literally makes no sense. Justice is when people get what they deserve. That's the definition of justice. If police were arresting black people because they were, being, they were black, I would be the first person to protest. That's an injustice. But arresting a criminal for being a criminal is right no matter what color he is. And if George Soros cared about high crime in the black community, which is the problem, he'd be working on improving the marriage rates among black parents and, and education, which has completely been abandoned. According to Drew Hallowell, writing in the excellent City Journal, Soros' publicly stated premise was that the deprosecution and decarceration reforms ushered in by his prosecutors would not degrade, but in fact improve safety in American cities. That belief was a major miscalculation. In poor cities, homicides have spiked, including the largest single-year increase in American history in 2020, continued escalation in 2021, and lingering high rates of murder clustered in cities with progressive prosecutors. What did you expect. Then there's defund the police. Another con, this was from Black Lives Matter mostly, an anti-American Maoist organization that we know are con men because they've used millions of donations to increase the personal wealth of their leaders. 
What happens when you defund the police? According to the FBI, aggravated assaults in America rose by an estimated 12.4%. The murder rate increased by a staggering 29.4%. Specifically in defund the police cities, Portland saw a 530% increase in its murder rate. Austin, Texas saw a 74% rise. New York's murder rate was 56% higher. Chicago's rose by 54%. The victims of these crimes, by the way, are often just as dark-skinned as that's, you know, as the criminals who are being let free. This is injustice. This is a terrible, terrible thing that George Soros and progressive thinking and Black Lives Matter and progressive thinking and also progressive thinking have done to America. And they meant to do it, and it was a con, but what did we expect when we accepted these stupid, stupid, unjust ideas? So today, I want to talk to a victim of crime and to a woman who works fighting for victims of crime. We'll begin with the victim, his name. He goes by the name of Sean. He's a classically trained ballet dancer, a lifelong New Yorker who lives in Manhattan. Sean, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So when did you experience a crime? What year? Um, my, the crime that I experienced was in 2021, um, in October. So we're coming on the anniversary of the incident that I experienced. Okay. Uh, can you explain what happened? Yeah. So it was, um, it was a Thursday evening and, um, this particular Thursday, um, I was dog sitting for a friend who lived in Brooklyn. I went with him outside, um, as I get to the crosswalk, there's a car parked in the middle of the crosswalk. Well, he's blocking the crosswalk or whatever, and the engine's running. So I pause and I hold the dog back and I, I look to see if he's coming, if he's going, if he's a Uber Eats drive. What, you know, it was at the corner of where there was a restaurant. So he didn't seem to be moving. So I decided to make my way, you know, to, around his car in the back. And as I approach the middle of his car, the reverse lights go up go on and he starts backing over us mm. or, or you know he's making his way to backing into us um so my knee-jerk reaction you know i'm holding the dog i don't want to i don't want to get hit i don't want the dog to get hit so i tap on his car with my phone sure. to let him know you know that there's a pedestrian behind him and you know like stop the car so he stopped the car stops no harm no foul i keep walking the next thing i know this guy gets out of his car wielding a knife and he starts threatening me i'm gonna i'm gonna kill you um starts using homophobic slurs um and i don't know what's going i i have no idea what you know where this is coming from and so thankfully there was a a bystander was walking toward where i had you know where where i was walking from and he kind of intervened and was able to keep the guy away from me um so i had my phone i was trying to record what was going on because i didn't know what was going to happen and the guy knocked the phone out of my hand i picked it up i said let me this could be very dangerous like let me go to his license plate so i walked to the front of his car to get his license plate there was no plates on the car and he jumps in to his car and as you know, before I could call the police or anything, he's trying to mow me down with his car as he fled the scene. So I have no idea what's going on. Um, a guy from the restaurant just across the way, you know, the, the West Village has very narrow streets. So there, you know, it, thing, a restaurant could see across the street and 
have a good idea of what's going on. Um, so he started filming and he sent me the video of what happened and I made the report to the police. It all happened pretty quickly. It wasn't the strike drawn out situation. Um, I was physically uninjured completely. So that was the, that was the, you know, that helps me sleep at night. So what, what happened when you went to the cops? I called 911 and we waited like 35 minutes and nobody came <laughs> and it was, yeah. So, um, the guy was, you know, getting away, right? So um, we walked over to the precinct because it wasn't far from where we were standing. And so we went in and they sat with me for hours, the, the, the bystanders, and they, they submitted reports to the police about what they saw, what, whatever. And then the police, um, you know, they were reviewing the videos with me and they were writing the report. Um, they were pretty um, supportive in this, in this in- instance. And... What happened was, you know, in the in the moment when the incident occurred, I didn't know that the guy had a knife. It wasn't until, because he was concealing it, but it wasn't until we reviewed the videos that they showed me that he was holding a knife and he was trying to, you know, puncture my back. He was trying to puncture me. He tried to stab the dog. Um, and so, you know, that made it worse because I was already afraid in the moment when he was you know, when he got out of his car and approached me and, um, you know, I didn't know that he had a knife until after the fact. All right. Now, now I've only got like two minutes. So tell me where, where the cops went with this. So eventually the guy got arrested. He, he had what he had was paper plates on the back of his car. Um, and they were able to track down the vehicle from the video. And a few months later, he got arrested. And then I was working with the district attorney's office. And essentially, they let this go on for months and months and months. They never submitted any of the evidence. They never charged him with a hate crime or, um, you know, for what he did. Um, as you know, they they negotiated something behind my back, and they never submitted the evidence. And the guy got off with no charges. I kept on sending the district attorneys um, emails asking them questions, and they never de- they never really responded. And then when it came down to um, him coming before the judge and getting sentenced or um, whatever, um, I, I had asked, are you using the video at the sentencing? And they said, we didn't enter it into the, um, into the, and I said, why? Like, you know, and, 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 and so I never really got an answer. And basically I've, I've submitted for investigations at the local state and federal level um, just because I, like I said, I was lucky that I didn't get injured, but there are people that have it much worse. It sure and will, yeah. and the, the people who are attacking them are getting caught and then being released again. I hate to ask this question, but I ask it because of what the DA has said in New York. Was the offender black? Was he a minority? Yeah, he was a black Muslim. So, yeah. so he was fit yeah. right in there, right in the wheelhouse for people who are going to get. Uh, and yeah. and that's interesting. And there and there is a hate crime law in New York, as I as I'm sure I'm sure of it. Yeah. And he wasn't charged with a hate crime, and he was not prosecuted under such. Um, and it's I, it's it's funny because it's on video. I have it. I have the video, and you hear him say these words, right? Yeah. And it's it's on video. It's audible. So and, and there's no mistaking it. And he and I only caught it once. He said it multiple times. Yeah. And, and after he said it, he uh, continued to try to stab me it's on video so the fact that it's in it's there's no there's if any 
normal person were to see it, they would they would know what happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so for that to not have been reflected and the charges in and any of the prosecu- prosecutorial um, you know arrangements is is it's um, a reflection of how terribly unsafe and how terribly um, disadvantaged the people, innocent constituents are when there's 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 just no um, there's no order. It's yeah. completely chaotic, yeah. um, and it's it's just it's a tragedy. Nikon, I got to stop there. I really appreciate your coming on and talking about this. Uh, I lived in New York in the, in the 70s and 80s, so I know how bad it can be. Yeah, good luck. Well, stay safe. Thank you. Uh, Have a good day. I've told you before, everybody here at The Daily Wire is a fan of Genucel here at The Andrew Clavin Show. We love it. Don't just take my word for it. Ella from Rockford says, I have both age and acne spots, and this stuff is actually fading both of them. This serum is worth every penny. Ella is raving about the famous dark spot corrector from Genucel, a must-have after months of record heat and humidity. Sunspots, brown spots, discoloration, even red inflamed patches all disappear in front of your very eyes. Here is the Genucel amazing guarantee. You will see results on day one or your money back. So take advantage of Genucel's most popular package, which now includes the Dark Spot Corrector, plus the classic Genucel Immediate Effects Cream, plus the under-eye treatment for bags and puffiness. You can get all this right now at about 70% off so that you can try the best skincare in the world completely risk-free. It's simple. Go to genucel.com slash Clavin. Start looking years, even decades younger tomorrow. Say goodbye to dark spots and liver spots, crow's feet and puffiness under the eyes. Go to genucel.com slash Clavin. That's genucel.com slash, let's hear it. How do you spell it? Give it to me. K-L-A-V-A-N. So now let's talk to Jennifer Harrison. Jennifer became an advocate for survivors of homicide and victims of violent crime after her boyfriend was murdered in 2005. She's the executive director of the Victim Rights Reform Council and founder of Victim Rights New York. Jennifer, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, begin with this murder. I mean, this uh, obviously a horrible event. What happened in 2005? So on January 15th of 2005, both my boyfriend and his best friend were murdered in a bar fight in New Jersey. Um, I was 27 years old. Kevin was 28. His friend was um, 27. And while all of my friends were planning weddings and having babies, I was going to a funeral and sitting through court proceedings. So I learned very early on how extremely broken the criminal justice system is, how, you know, the defendants have all of the rights. There were certain things that weren't allowed to be brought up in court, like one of the defendants had been arrested for carrying a knife in a bar before because that was prejudicial. Uh, One of the defendants was on parole in New York. That was prejudicial. But everything that Kevin and his friend had ever done in their entire life was allowed to be brought into court, every mistake that they had ever made. Um, So we had a really uh, like a pit bull prosecutor who I'm friends with to this day um, who said, Jen, like, don't worry, I'm going to get these guys for you. He ended up getting into a car accident and had to take a leave of absence. And we got stuck with this guy who had like spit on his glasses and holes in his suits and drool on the side of his mouth, totally incompetent. And that turned into a sweetheart deal for, you know, two of the brothers getting completely off and one person accepting a plea deal um, to serve nine and a half years for killing two people. Wow. Because now, of it, it basically an incompetent prosecutor. 
Was was this when you say a bar fight? Was this a thing where words were exchanged and then suddenly these two guys were dead, or was this an actual? Actually, goal? no. From what I understand, um, from what the detectives told me, no. Um, it, it was actually over a girl that Kevin was with while we were broken up. Um, so she was there. She followed them there because she was not happy that we were getting back together. She, he wasn't paying attention to her. She went over to these other men, sat on one of their laps, was acting like an idiot. Kevin's friend was a really, really nice guy, went over and said like something along the lines, like, you know, let me take you home before you get yourself in trouble. Like, let's get out of here. And the the guy, from what I understand, one of the guys just stood up and stabbed him in the heart. And, you know, I watched the video and you see in frames, he's standing there one second and then the next second, like his feet are up on the floor. And then you can't see anything else because all hell just breaks loose. Right. OK, so that's not really that's actually a murder. It's not a fight, uh, a bar fight. Um, so that's 2005. We're now quite a long ways from there. And New York has gone from one of the safest cities in the world to, again, being almost as dangerous as it was when I lived there in the 70s and 80s a long time ago. What what has changed as far as you're concerned? I mean, basically everything. The pendulum has, has uh, swung so far to the left. And all of the elected officials that we have in office, and this is an epidemic that's sweeping across the country, by the way, have shifted all empathy and compassion towards those that have intentionally inflicted harm upon others rather than the innocent victims like myself, who still 19 years later, you know, I can't help but wonder what would have happened if he w- wasn't taken from me. Um, you know, and then I, I work with mothers who have buried their children who are never getting their children back. And it's just um, unfathomable that criminals that inflicted this pain and handed us these lifelong sentences of grief and pain and trauma you know, once again, the the burden is on and the onus is on us, the innocent victim, rather than the people that did this to us. We have, um, you know, we have policies like raise the age, which removes criminal enforcement of laws for minors, where you're seeing a lot of increased gun violence across the state and across the country because um, they're implementing similar policies everywhere. Bail reform, we have less is more that has removed any kind of parole supervision um, and then you have progressive DAs and, you know, like Alvin Bragg is the most infamous one because he's the only idiot that issued a day one memo publicly. Um, but most of the DAs in, in New York City, uh, four, you know, four out of five of them are practicing those progressive policies. Do you advocate at all with the DA's office? Do you talk to them at all? They well, won't talk to me. <laughs> they won't talk. Yeah, I, I figured. No, and anybody that um, anybody that would have talked to me or that I was able to have conversations with has left. They've all gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, purposely because of these DAs saying this, this is not what I signed on to do. Yeah, I think they just can't take it anymore. You know, I think that they're all suffering some kind of trauma from what's happening there, too. And, you know, I think a lot of them really tried to stay on and fight for us as long as they could. But, you know, it's it's really hard to deal with. And he doesn't make life easy. And, you know, when you're you're going up and arguing against public defenders like Daphne Uren, who is the supervisor of all of Alvin Bragg's like top cases, you know, you really can't win an argument. It's just that I don't I don't know how anybody could live like that. Do you work with victims themselves? Yes. What do you, what what do you do? What kind of services do you offer for victims? Um 
peer support, connecting, you know, I'm here to talk to to people. I'm, I'm on the phone with victims of all different crimes. Uh, you know, like I said, mothers that have buried their children, victims of domestic violence, mothers or or victims of child abuse. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I talk to them. If, I, if I'm not the person to talk to, then I help connect them with peer support and other uh, support groups across the country. We provide um, legislative ad advocacy. So there's um, this one woman in Texas that I got in touch with. She was having a rough time with the district attorney and her daughter was being abused there. So I got in touch with the senators. We got the governor involved and, and they're now they're helping with that situation. Um, we do have a comprehensive legislative and policy agenda for New York, but that we would also like to see implemented across the country. Um, and, you know, eventually we would like to help provide financial grants for victims that need financial resources, whether it's rebuilding their lives or paying their mortgage because they, you know, can't work because of court dates or what, whatever that is. So first, let me ask this. I, I mean, I, I always feel kind of uncomfortable asking this, but because a lot of these progressive DAs were installed with George Soros's help, and because George Soros has said specifically that he wants fewer uh, people of color to be put in prison, as if the, their color sort of uh, alleviated their guilt for, for committing crimes. What mixture of, of people are you seeing in terms of the victims, uh, in terms of their race, color, crime? You know, uh, color. Are they are they all kinds of people, or are you seeing mostly white people, mostly black people? What do you see? Right. Um, look, <laughs> criminals don't look at you and say, oh, you're white. I'm not going to attack you. Or, oh, you're a Republican. I'm not going to attack you. Or, oh, you're a Democrat or you're black. So I'm not going to attack you. Um, so, yes, they, they come in all shapes and forms, all races, um, all political ideologies. You know, we've seen in Manhattan, Christina Lee was an Asian woman who was murdered by somebody that was out on supervised release um, that was let out just a few days before by Alvin Bragg. Um, you know, then we see, uh, you know, Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny on the subway. We see, um, uh, you know, all of the people that were victims of subway put pushers were like all different races, all different political ideologies. Um, the mothers uh, that are burying their children are, are white, black, brown, Asian. Um, people that are being attacked for hate crimes are Asian, Jewish, you know, black, brown. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. When you talk to people, when you talk to these victims, do they have a sense of what's going on? Do they have a sense that um, uh, of the change that's come over the prosecutors? Oh, yes, they they definitely do. And and um, th that's why I am the voice that I, I've become, because a lot of people still have pending cases. And even though they know and they're they're you know deeply frustrated, they're scared to speak up because they live in areas where, you know, everybody votes Democrat and being a conservative or being a Republican or having this kind of belief that bad people should be in jail is racist. So a lot of people are too scared to speak up about their anger. Um, so they come they come to me instead. Wow. So they're coming to you because they don't want to get in trouble with their neighbors, with their employers. Uh, I mean, what are they afraid of? Yeah, uh, both. And, yeah. and you know, it's hard to get people to show up at a rally for that reason, too. And, you know, we also our side works. You know, the other side is well-funded and well-organized. They have paid volunteers that they just pay $100, $150 a day to come out and protest every day, and that's their job. But we have lives that we have to get back to. One of the things I hear from cops, I mean, I've heard this in many different cities, that, you know, 
that the idea that that black Americans don't want the police in their neighborhood is insane. I mean, no, of course they want the police in their neighborhood. That's where the crime is. When you when you are talking to a black crime victim who is frustrated by these prosecutors, what's what is their point of view? Do they not do they not realize that you know activists speaking on their behalf have brought these people? upon us? Yeah, they're um, extremely upset that these people, um, you know, who are basically white liberals and that don't have to live under these conditions and are getting paid for their activism, I don't think it's really, you know, from the the good of their heart when you're being paid to do it, um, are coming into their communities and destroying them when they know nothing about the way that they live or or the hardships or the grief or the trauma that's being caused by this. And and anytime that I talk to a black victim, they, they say, I didn't ask for this. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what about progressive? You said, as you pointed out, and it's absolutely true, the criminals don't care who they attack. So when you meet a progressive who's been attacked, I mean, there's old, the old joke is that a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Do you see that phenomenon in action? Um, I haven't actually had to deal with that yet, thank God, because, you know, I would have, I still, you know, I have to treat every victim the same and can't say, well, who did you vote for when (laughs) you call me? Um, You know, sometimes it's crossed my mind, to be honest with you, but um, nobody deserves this, regardless of how they voted or what mistakes they've made or or how they believe or what religion they are. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, I just hope that people are starting to wake up because, you know, it's at the point where everybody knows somebody that's been a victim. So one of the the things I think is a big problem here is when you go to vote, and most people don't vote to begin with, but when you go to vote... Well, that's that's the problem. Yes, that, that's one problem. But the other problem is even I get down on the ballot and I'm, you know, I'm very politically involved and I read a lot and all this, but it comes a point when I'm down on the ballot, I don't know who anybody is. And sometimes when you get to the DA, you know, no DA says, I'm going to stop their, I'm going to stop prosecuting. They all have a language of how they're going to, you know, reform the justice system. And, you know, they don't really come out and say what they're going to do. How do you inform people? How do you get the word out to people when, when a prosecutor is running, who's a George Soros hack or any other kind of progressive hack, how do you get the word out to people? Well, that's why I formed my political action committee, because as a nonprofit, you're not allowed to be politically active or endorse candidates. So um, I believe that more nonprofits really should get out because you're allowed to raise awareness as to your issues as long as you don't endorse anybody or get involved in the campaign, actually. Um, But just to be safe, because we are in New York and, you know, I would have a target on my back because of what I'm doing, um, I did form the Political Action Committee in hopes of raising awareness and putting information out. We were successful here in Suffolk County in beating, you know, a pretty well-liked incumbent um, who was well-funded and endorsed by the PBA, um, who had like, you know, was outfunded and uh, what well, we were outfunded and and we won. Um, so I'm I'm proud of that. Um, and I hope that that we're going to be more successful in races like that across the country. But there's also a book out there. I don't know if you've read it. It was put out by a few people from the Heritage Foundation. It's actually called Rogue Prosecutors. You can find it on Amazon. And it actually says that you know, just what we talked about, that a lot of people don't know who these DAs are or get involved in these races. There's very low turnout when when these races come about. So that's why George Soros kind of picked 
pick this area because it's an easy target. So, um, you know, books like that, if people people have to pay attention to social media and just not the news because the, the media is complicit in the cover up for the Democrats and progressive policies, they're starting to wake up a little bit now, too, because they they realize what an epic failure this is. And there's no way to wash the blood off of their hands either. But um, they're not coming around quick enough. Hmm. What, what other political actions? Now, you're working all across the country. You're situated in New York, which is a hotbed of this stuff. But what other political actions do you think we should be supporting to, to strike back against Soros? I mean, the guy is a really smart guy. He, the, the, thing, the plan that he made has been incredibly successful, and it was incredibly insightful. He did this with um, the elections, too. He went after the people who count the votes, the people who run the board of elections. So he knows those obscure little places to go in. Uh, where you can really turn things around, and this is one of them. So what what other political actions do you want to take that might thwart him or at least uh, slow him down? Well, really what we need is for um, people, conservatives who have financial resources to back our movement. Um, We need to meet them where they are and get out there and have rallies and and be able to pay people to take time off of work, even if it's just one day, and just keep raising awareness and keep hitting back. Um, We need for the media to start covering us. That's why, you know, I kind of inserted myself into the media a lot to get some of these numbers out there as, um, you know, because people don't understand that, you know, their local prosecutor has a a 51 to 55 dismissal rate or or is dropping 50 to 65 percent of felonies down to misdemeanors. And, you know, until you hear that, you, you, you don't know what's going on. Right. Um, so we're we're really trying to wait, raise awareness across the country as to what is happening in each local county office. So one of the problems, a lot of this does start with the media, maybe even ends with the media. We saw during the George Floyd riots, the media covering up the crime, the criminality, the damage that was being done, calling these what were riots, race riots, calling them mostly peaceful uh, demonstrations. We saw the, I, I think, the demonization. Uh, you know, I don't think Derek Chauvin was a very good cop. The guy who was kneeling on uh, George Floyd when he died, I don't think he was doing very good police work. But I also think that George Floyd took a handful of fentanyl and basically uh, overdosed. And so I, I, I feel like the entire movement has been based on a big lie, which is that the police are racist. I just don't believe that's true. When you go, do you try and, obviously you try and reach the media. What kind of reactions do you get or do you just get ignored? Well, I mean, now, you know, th- thankfully um, Fox News and Newsmax and and other, um, you know, other outlets on the, on the right side of issues have has been paying attention and putting us out there and, you know, listening when I, I send them victims. Um, so we're very, very grateful for that platform and for you for doing this today. Um, it's greatly appreciated. But yes, CNN, actually, uh, Melinda Katz, who's up for election in New York and Queens, actually, she, you know, she's not Soros back, I don't think, but she has that same public defender mentality. She wrongfully exonerated a gang member who murdered a 14 year old girl on a uh, on a bus on her way home from a sweet 16 party. Um CNN covered and celebrated his exoneration, but completely left out the fact that Melinda Katz's office blatantly lied in open court. They didn't even get the facts right. There were 13 shots fired. They said that there were 10. Um, There was a recanting witness who was 
also a gang member, but there were other witnesses that testified and substantiated this entire story. Um, they never held a hearing, and they also lied to Deja's mom, who lost her 14-year-old daughter the, throughout the entire course of this investigation for the, you know, the, the vacating of the conviction. So, um, you know, it's really frustrating and infuriating when, you know, they only do one side of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, the networks, I assume, never cover any of this. Right. <laughs> and have you, have you, have you had a chance to engage with them? I'm always curious about this because I know how hard it can be to reach anybody. Uh, have you ever said to them, why aren't you covering this? I, you know, how can you turn away from well, it? Well, um, to their credit, uh, the CNN producers did reach out to Deja's mom and let her know that they were going to be doing this um, and asked if she wanted to participate, which is when she called me to um you know, get in touch with them and ask them a few questions. And once we realized where they were going with the story, we knew how they were going to handle it. So she did provide a written statement. She took two weeks to write out this statement and um, they included maybe three words of it <laughs> and and maybe 10 seconds of her and her, her part of it. So um, I, I did, I, I text the producers and I, I went to Twitter and social media and I blasted them and I told them that it was absolutely disgusting and abhorrent and that's why she didn't participate to begin with and that they should really consider telling the truth from now on. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't uh, hold my breath. <laughs> you, now, now you mentioned obviously that you you need money, you need funding, but but specifically in terms of, of legal action, are, are there what what are the two things you'd like to see done? If you could pick two laws that you could pass like that, what would they be? Well, if you go on my website, victimsrightsnypac.com or the victimsrightsreformcouncil.org, we have three pages of legislative items and policy items, like a wish list, if you will. And most of them are, are very, very common sense issues that you would already think. I mean, when people read this, they would be what, like, what do you mean that's not existing already? Give me an example. Um, so, yeah. so I can't really say one or two things, oh. but what, what, legally what we re what I would like to see is um, we would like to find a creative lawyer that's just as fed up as we are that would help us uh, file civil rights lawsuits for victims or or regular everyday citizens whose rights are basically violate being violated by the release of violent violent recidivists on a daily basis. You and I have the basic right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to walk down the the road freely, of uh, uh, free of fear and not having to look over our shoulder thinking that we're going to be attacked or go on a subway and think that we're going to be pushed onto the tracks. So I, I feel like that's a violation. Uh, so that that's really my main goal right now is to is to help find find some legal representation and get creative and really stick it to them in the courts. All right, Jennifer Harrison, the what's, what are the names of your organizations? Tell me again. Victims Rights New York. That's the Political Action Committee and Victims Rights Reform Council, and that's victimsrightsreformcouncil.org. Well, good luck to you, and I hope uh, I hope some of these prosecutors get turned out. I've, there's been some of that, at least a little bit in San Francisco and in Florida. We'll see if it spreads to New York, where things have genuinely gotten almost as bad as they were when I lived there. Uh, good luck. Thank you so much. And if everybody could just really, if any of your viewers are in Queens, New York, make sure that you get out and vote for Judge Grasso against Melinda Katz. All right. Good. Good ad. I appreciate it. Thank you, General.
All right, not a lot of good news there, but maybe good news in the future as people get fed up. Last time Rudy Giuliani got elected and changed everything. It can happen. People do have a, a limit to which they will go. Meanwhile, please pre-order The House of Love and Death, the new Cameron Winter mystery coming out October 31st. Pre-orders are very helpful for getting the book on the bestseller list. And visit me on Friday at The Daily Wire for The Andrew Clavin Show. 